Good morning. And let's begin with prayer. Gracious Father, we are so thankful for your love, for the mercies you've shown us, for, for what you have done for us through Jesus Christ. We ask for your spirit to join us now, enlighten our minds, draw our hearts together, prepare us for the events that are unfolding on the world as in, in our lifetime right now. Give us discernment to, to see where the path of uh, life is leading, that we can participate with you and make us effective agents in this world to reach others who are confused and, and don't understand the issues, that we can be effective agents to articulate the truth and win souls to your kingdom. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Before we get into our lesson, uh, a couple of announcements. On May 6th and 7th, I will be, uh, which is next weekend, I will be doing an uh, event uh, at Lakewood Seventh uh, day Adventist Church in Lakewood, Ohio, uh, Friday evening and all day Saturday program. And then um, I've just been scheduled in July, July 15 and 16, uh, to speak at the United Health Care Summit in Grand Rapids, Michigan, um, which uh, w- with uh, other noted uh, speakers like uh, Peter McCullough and um, and other basically individuals who are uh, advocating for the principles of openness and freedom. And I will be uh, presenting on uh, COVID and the manipulation of your mind and uh, how... Um, you know, practices have been utilized to, to undermine critical reasoning and evidence-based conclusions. And that will be my program. And that's in July. So you keep me in prayer on that. Remind people of the resources on our website. Uh, if you have questions, go to our website, use the search engine, type in your question. We have resources going back more than a decade now that answers many of the questions. And also the free videos that we have there. Um, just rich, rich place to, uh, to get uh, materials. Our lesson this week is Lesson 7 in the Quarterly Genesis, and the title is The Covenant with Abraham. And when you hear The Covenant with Abraham, The Covenant with Abraham, what comes to mind? The promise to be a great nation, father of a great nation. Uh, The second paragraph says, Like Noah's covenant, Abraham's covenant involves other nations as well. For ultimately, the covenant with Abraham is part of the everlasting covenant which is offered to all humanity. And I just thought that was well said. That's exactly right. The covenant to Abraham is not a new covenant. It is the outworking of the covenant of Genesis 3.15 when God said that the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. Abraham is now promised that from his seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So this is the outworking or the communication that the promise in the covenant I made in Eden after Adam's fall is going to be realized through this branch of the human family. Family, Abraham's descendants. The basis of the covenant with Abraham was that this covenant based on an agreement that was dependent upon some work or achievement that Abraham needed to accomplish. Was it based on some genetic, um, uh, some genetic aspect of Abraham's being? He has a certain gene that was needed. Or, or was it based on um, genetics moving forward? He will have a certain genetic combination with Sarah that is vital to, for, for Jesus' coming. And only the genetic descendants of, of Abraham and Sarah will be a part of the covenant. It's all genetically determined. Or, or was it made in law-keeping, in, in ceremonies and regulations? See, there were certain, certain ceremonies that had to be carried out in order for this covenant to work. If you don't carry them out, then, then it doesn't work. Well, certainly, 
Abraham's works were involved. He did leave Ur, didn't he? And certainly Abraham is a biological being with DNA who produced children in his image. And certainly there were actual um, ceremonies that were carried out. But none of those were actually the basis of the covenant. What was the basis of the covenant? What's it built on? Faith. Faith. Obedience. Faith in response to something. It's not built on faith. It's faith is faith is part of it, though. It's built on God's grace. It's built on God's grace, isn't it? Isn't God's grace the foundation of the covenant? God's. You could also call it God's promise. God's actions, God's interventions, God's initiative. In other words, the covenant based on God. And then the faith is a response to that. So it is grace, and then the faith or the trust of Abraham in the one who makes the promise. Are we able to participate in this covenant today, you and I? How? How can we participate? Do we need to get some animals, cut them in half, uh, uh, sit down there and, and make sure the vultures don't come and eat them, and wait for a, uh, a you know, floating light to come float through? Is that how we participate? You all know that what I just described is what Abraham did. How do we participate? So what's it founded on? Same thing as Abraham's. God's grace... And our trust, we trust him, our faith. The just shall live by faith or trust. And it's a faith or trust that leads us to choose. Once we have trusted him, we choose to follow where he leads. We leave our Babylon, our Ur, and move toward the promised land. Metaphorically speaking, we leave behind attachments to things that we understand are corrupting to our lives. And we move in a direction through God's grace, enlightenment. We have to choose, and this is how it works. The Holy Spirit comes, he enlightens minds with some truth in your journey where you are on your next step, which may be different than my next step in my journey. You have comprehension and you have conviction. This is where I'm leading. And you have a conviction of your duty. And then you are left completely free to choose to step that direction, to choose to accept that truth, to choose to do where you and go where you're being led, or to say, I'm not ready. Uh, you know what? That's, a, that's an interesting direction, an interesting plan, Lord. But you know what? I think this way will get me there quicker. And I'm completely on board with where we need to go. I'm completely on board, Lord. I'm not in rebellion. But I just think this is a better way to get there. I think it would be better to take Hagar to get to that promise that you promised me. It would be better to do that my way. Because I, I believe you. I believe I'm going to be a father of a great nation. I believe the promise is coming. And I'm going to follow this path to get there. And this is the challenge of faith. Yes, I trust you, and I will follow where you lead. And then when we make the choice, guys, when we make the choice, you actually choose it, then you receive divine power to succeed. You don't get the power until you make the choice. You get the enlightenment, you get the conviction, 
You can have the comprehension. You can have the understanding. You can know your duty. But you don't get power until you say, yes, I choose. That's when you get the power. Pardon? How do you keep works out of accomplishing some of this? Oh, you never keep works out of it. That's why your faith, James... Faith without, works. Genu- faith without works is dead. Uh, but the works, so th- this is where people get confused. Under an imposed law model, then the, um, the, pr- the problem of salvation is legal. And you have to do something to pay the right price. And if you bring works into it, then your works are nothing but filthy rags. And you, they can't contribute to the price, so your works are actually not relevant. The only thing that's relevant is the perfect blood of Jesus who pays the price. And so works are irrelevant. Under the design law model, we have a terminal condition, a sin condition, a condition of fear and selfishness in our hearts, a condition we did not choose, a condition in which we were born, born in sin, conceived in iniquity. That condition without remedy results in self-destruction and death. Jesus came to remedy the condition. He partook of our humanity. He was tempted in every way just like we are. He faced the struggles of a human being. He, he was hungry. He, he agonized. He was tortured physically. He was tempted with arrogant and prideful people who lied about him and falsely accused him. Imagine the outrage of the injustice and the temptations that his feelings. And in every one of those temptations, his humanity instead chooses truth and love. He rejects the temptation to act in self-interest, to hurt his um, persecutors, to use his power to stop death from taking him. And thus, in the person of Jesus Christ, we have a humanity, a humanity that develops perfectly and destroys fear and selfishness. He destroys death and brings life and immortality to light. And he rises in a new humanity that he developed. He is the remedy. Hebrews 5, 8, once he became perfect, Excuse me. Once he was made perfect, he became the source of life for all who obey him. Made perfect? Wasn't he always perfect? He was always sinless. Bible perfection is about maturity of character. And Christ, as a human being, developed a perfect, sinless, mature human character. That's the remedy. The truth wins us to trust, and then we, through trust, open the heart and receive what Christ took, and we then participate and work. So the salvation of an individual sinner is a cooperative effort between the Holy Spirit working in us and we working with the Holy Spirit. And that's why it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's exactly right. We don't create the remedy. We participate through faith and receive and apply with God's power to our lives the new principles. Yes. In the design law, all the works are critical. You exercise your will That's right. to choose to follow the, the lead of the Holy Spirit. You exercise discernment to decide what is right and what is wrong and to, to develop, to, to distinguish the spirits. You exercise your witnessing and, and sharing. With, I mean, the law of exertion is, is one of the design laws. The works have to be there. So, so a metaphor, if you had a... Um illness, cancer, pneumonia, it doesn't really matter which one, uh, and, and you're dying of it, and you go to a doctor who has a either a remedy, yes, a remedy, it could be an antibiotic, it could be a chemotherapy that cures the cancer, either way, do you need to take the remedy? Now, the doctor can prescribe it, uh, and, and if you get this remedy that will work, did you, did you make it? No, you didn't make it. 
You didn't discover it. You didn't procure it. You didn't produce it. When it's given to you, though, do you have a choice that you have to take it or not take it? Okay? That's a work that you have to do. But it's not a work to fix the condition. It's a work to receive the healing that has already been achieved for you. So all of our works in law-keeping that we do, living in harmony with the laws of health and the laws of, of uh, for instance, um, no longer if you were a thief on the cross and you didn't die that day, you'd go out and you choose not to steal anymore. That's the choice of the individual to no longer act in those ways. That's a, you could call that a work. That work doesn't actually make him righteous. What actually caused him to choose not to steal? A new heart that no longer has a desire to steal. And so the work of not stealing and actually maybe going to work and earning a paycheck is the fruit of the new heart being lived out. And so all of our law-keeping is a result of a heart that has new motives. Rather than the law-keeping that seeks to merit or earn a reward. Second paragraph of the lesson states that Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, Ishmael all struggle with fear. They all struggle with fear. Not, not in the sense of reverence and awe, but, but anxiety, dread, and terror. Why? Why did they all struggle with fear? Where did that fear come from? She says, lack of faith. Where did it come from? Have any of you ever had fears, worries, anxieties, insecurities any, about anything? About whether you're going to be able to pay your bills? About whether this person's going to like you or not like you? How many had that in high school? Okay. Okay. We've all had them, haven't we? But when did we choose to have them? When did you say, I'm, I would like to have a little, a little dose of fear, please? No. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. Fear is part of the infection of sin that the human species now struggles with because of what Adam did. We are born in sin, conceived in iniquity. We are born fearful. We have anxieties and fears of all kinds. Now, what does fear, the emotion of fear, when you experience fear, not awe, not reverence, fear, what does it lead one to do? Where does it focus your attention? Fear leads to selfishness. And self-preservation, the survival of the fittest drive, it tempts us to act selfishly. It's what fear tempts us to do. You can experience fear and not give in to it, but fear given into leads to acts of self-preservation, even at the expense of others. That's what it does. What is it that drives out fear? Genuine love for other people. Perfect love drives out all fear. And neurobiologically, we know, we can see, when your love circuits are active in your brain, it sends biologically down to the amygdala, which is your fear circuitry, it actually sends a calming signal down, so you actually have less fear when you act in love, or you're experiencing love, or you're receiving love, and you fire those love circuits, you calm, you become less fear, fearful. Uh, that's, that reduces the a- activation of your adrenal glands. You have lower corticosteroids and lower adrenaline, and you have lower blood pressures and lower heart rates, and you have le- less inflammation in your body. And so if you live in a state of love, you actually have a healthier physiology, and you live longer. If you live in a state of anxiety, worry, fear, and everything like me, always stressed, always worried, is this going to happen? That you actually are constantly firing your fear circuitry that undermines your health. This is neurobiological. So love 
drives out fear. But love is not the only godly element that drives out fear. There's at least another. Trust. Truth. Uh, truth will lead us to a place that drives out the fear. What was it? Trust. 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 Trust drives out fear. Think about when you're afraid, and, and, and whatever the problem is, you now genuinely trust somebody else is going to take care of it. Oh, they've got it. Don't, doesn't your fear go down when you trust that they're going to take care of it? Whatever it is. A child trusts mommy's going to take care of it. They're not afraid. A, a wife trusts her husband's got it. Not afraid. The anxiety goes down. We trust God. But the problem with trust, this is one of Satan's greatest traps. Because you can trust anything. You can have faith in anything. And if you have real faith and real trust in something, it will still work to make you feel safer and less vulnerable. Not only does Satan incite fear, remember the Bible says he's a roaring lion. Lion's roars don't actually cause direct harm. Lion's roars cause everyone in the environment to become afraid. And at the end of time, Satan is roaring. Do you hear the roar in society? The constant messaging that tells you be afraid. Be afraid. Be afraid. Be afraid. Be afraid. All, everything practically we hear is something designed to threaten you and make you afraid. And, and if the threat can be something nebulous, something that you cannot in your own senses that God has given you identify, see, and address, it works all the better for Satan. You know, something like, Climate change. No, you laugh. This is constantly telling you it's a threat. It's a threat. But you personally, with your five senses, cannot measure and tell discernibly if there's any actual global climate change beyond your ability to see, identify, or do anything directly about. It's messaging to keep you afraid, but also powerless and helpless at the same time. How about some type of an infectious agent that you can't actually see? You don't know, but you're told it could be anywhere. Anybody in here could be uh, carrying death plague upon them, and you might be killed if you get near them. But you can't actually tell. And when allergy seasons are high and you see somebody's nose running, oh, you run because they could be killing you is you can't measure. These nebulous threats are used in a way to incite fear and simultaneously helplessness. And when you're chronically afraid of something that you can't take a direct personal action to fix, I, I don't know what to do, then what do you look for? There you go. Somebody to trust. And we just need a voice of authority to tell us where to go and what to do and we'll feel safe. And along comes the voices with their professional degrees and their endorsements of the, the, the media and the pundits constantly telling us. And if we just trust them, don't question, don't ask for evidence, just trust, you'll be safe, you'll be safe. It doesn't matter that what they're leading you to do is actually killing you. You will follow the Judas goat right to the execution chamber feeling safe if you trust the Judas goat. 
And that's part of the problem that we see. Fear. I want to feel safe. I don't know how. It's a threat I don't know, can't identify. What do I do? Find somebody to trust. And if you trust the wrong person, and this is the grand deception at the end, who comes impersonating Christ? And what will the state of the world be? There will be some chaotic things happening globally with nature destabilizing and other types of threats. And here comes a being with some type of supernatural revelation or power. And, and everybody's going to want to feel safe. And if you just trust me and do what I say, I can, I can save you. This is where the world's leading. Uh, COVID. Trained. Conditioned. Billions of people. to surrender to a voice of authority so they can feel safe. Not to follow truth. Truth doesn't matter. Feeling safe and not being afraid, that, that's what matters. It's very sad. So what is trust safely built upon? When is it safe to, to trust? When there's evidence the person's right. When there's evidence that the person is trustworthy. That's when it's safe. It's safe to trust somebody trustworthy. And that's why Romans chapter 3, God sent his son and revealed him publicly dying to demonstrate God's righteousness. Romans 3, 23 to 25, read it. He sent him public to, now some versions will say to demonstrate God's justice because they can't conceive of a possibility that God would ever be misunderstood as untrustworthy. They don't conceive of that. So they trans, but the same word, Greek, just, justice, right, righteousness, it's the same, one, one Greek word translated to English words. Some versions will translate it righteousness to demonstrate his righteousness. And that's exactly what he did to demonstrate. You can trust the one who has all the power. Because he would rather let you kill him than use the power to stop you. Wow. Did you see that at, at the cross? Did you recognize that he is worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain? Because all power is in his hands and he never will abuse it, even when we're killing him. Would you trust some of the politicians we see in the world today with, that, with the power of God? They're not trustworthy. And they re reveal it. Sunday, uh, first paragraph, says God's first response to Abram's concern about an heir is that he will have a son from his own body. The same language is used to pro, uh, by the prophet Nathan to refer to the seed of the future messianic king. Abram was reassured uh, and believed in the Lord because he understood that the fulfillment of God's promise depended not on his own righteousness, but on God's. And the lesson suggests that we read Romans 4, 5, and 6. So I'll read it from the NIV. What then shall we say, and this is uh, Romans 4, 1 through 6 in the NIV. Uh, what shall we say then, what shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered is this in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, 
To the man who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. What does it mean? We read the words. Well, what law lens do you hear the words through? If you hear the word through an imposed law, you draw one conclusion. If you understand design law, these words mean something completely different. But let's just walk it very straight through. What actually is described functionally, operationally? What is described as having happened? It says Abraham believed God. What does it mean to believe God? Does it is it more than cognitive awareness, knowing that something about God or believing that God actually said the words? Remember James two, nineteen. You believe there is one God. Well, good. Even demons believe that and shudder. Well, there we have it. Demons believe. It's knowing God. Is that what is that kind of belief? What what's talked about here for Abraham? Believing God must be something more than believing God exists. Or believing God said something. I know God said it. I believe he said it. That's not what this kind of belief is. It actually means, and, and, and you said it, it means to trust God. To trust. Abraham didn't believe some fact that God exists or that some fact that God said something. He, he actually believed God. He trusted God. Because he knew it. Now, why would such trust... Abraham believed or trusted God, be connected in Scripture with Abraham being recognized as righteous. The legal proponents would say, well, as soon as he trusted God, he got a credit in his record book in heaven, an accounting adjustment. The books were changed. Let's go design law. What is, according to Scripture, the natural state of the sinful, carnal human heart and mind? Is the natural state of our hearts and minds hearts that trust God or distrust God? If you uh, want a scripture for that, of course it says in Romans that the, and I can read it to you, and, and this is the same just a few verses later in chapter 8 from what we just read in about Abraham in chapter 4, the same author is writing here, so let, let him explain. And he says, for those who live according to the flesh, they're... Uh, set their minds on the things according to the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. For the carnal mind is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. So, if the natural state of the human heart is carnal, worldly, fleshly, distrusting of God then when it says Abraham trusted God, what does that actually mean? Didn't something change in Abraham? Yes, this is reality-based. Abraham's heart changed from distrust to trust. So you could say his heart attitude toward God was put right or set right or rightified or made right, and the Latin term for that is? Justified. His heart was justified. So because his heart moved from distrust to trust, God recognizes reality and says Abraham is recognized as righteous or justified or put right because his heart was reset to a proper orientation of trust. This is reality. 
God is the God of reality. And if you actually look up in the various lexicons, the word that is translated, the Greek word translated, credited, that was re- read in the NIV, look it up and read. It'll, it'll tell you. This word deals with reality. If somebody credits $5 in their checking account, it's because they actually have $5 in their checking account. That's what the word means. It's objective measure of reality. Therefore, it can't mean what we're told in the penal substitution model, that God declares you to be righteous even though you're not. No, you're actually righteous, as Scripture says, that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteous. Our heart orientation, driven by fear, selfishness, distrusting God, doing it our way, is reoriented that, no, we trust God, we know we have a condition we can't fix, we trust him, open our hearts to him, reborn with new attitudes to overcome and to live a a righteous life. That person is right with God. The sad history of Christianity is, though, that the healing plan of God to actually set hearts right, achieved through Christ, taught in Scripture, promoted by Paul, was supplanted by a Roman imperialistic view of law and authority that corrupted the gospel into a legal process. Luther came along and recognized many problems with the Roman system that were not in Scripture and was integral in moving the Reformation or starting the Reformation. And we're so thankful to Luther. What a man of conviction, of courage, a man used by God to lead the people out of blindly trusting church authority to tell them the answers, leading them back to the Bible, putting the Bible in the language of the people so they could read it and study it for themselves. Luther did a great work for God. But Luther was a finite human being who had many misconceptions himself that he, in his lifetime, never worked out. And he retained many errors. You may or may not know, but when Luther used the term sola scriptura, the scriptures and the scriptures alone, he did not include all the books that you cherish in your scripture. We have 66 books that we recognize as inspired. Luther had 62 Luther did not recognize the book of James as being inspired, nor the book of Jude, nor the book of Hebrews, nor the book of Revelation. You take those four books out, and guess what you don't have? A great controversy that extends beyond earth. And Luther wrote, he, some of the, of the church fathers fancied that there was a war in heaven. He thought it was fantasy. Because he had an imperial Roman view of God and law. And the Roman view of God and law is that he is an, a, an infinite power making up rules. And it would be impossible. It's ludicrous to consider a created being could begin a war in the presence of an omnipotent power who uses power to put down evil. It could never have. It's fantasy. Why? Because he has an imperial God. It could only happen away from his presence here on earth, you see. But in heaven, it could never happen. And then Luther's legal penal view of law led directly to his development of penal substitution theology. And he he developed penal substitution theology because of his view of law and also because he wanted to disempower what he viewed as fraudulent exploitation of the church over the masses of people with the doctrines of um, purgatory, the doctrine of purgatory. 
the Roman church taught that, that if you have certain sins that you didn't get confessed and purged from your record prior to death, that, that rather than going to heaven, even you're on the path of righteousness, but you didn't get those purged from your record, you go to purgatory to suffer an appropriate amount of time to pay for those sins before you can then enter heaven, have them purged from your soul, so to speak. And you can help your loved ones who didn't get all their sins purged before they die to have a shorter time of suffering and launch into heaven sooner if you give gold to the church. You know, every time a coin rings, a soul from purgatory springs. <laughs> this was a, a, a common thing the, the collectors of the church would say to the people. And, and Luther wanted to disempower that. So Luther taught penal substitution theology, the idea that all sins of all humans of all time, past, present, and future, were all placed on Jesus at the cross, and God and God punished him on the cross for every sin. And when you accept Jesus as your Savior, then his righteous sinless blood is applied to your legal account in heaven, and all sins have been paid for. So there's no unpaid-for sins for the righteous that need to be paid for and purged in purgatory. There's no need for it. And Luther taught that the righteous sleep after they die in a heavenly bedchamber waiting for the resurrection because he wanted to destroy. This is where the penal substitution theology came from. It's sad that many Christians today are still teaching 500-year-old theology based on somebody who held a very authoritarian view of God and the wrong view of God's law. And I can tell you, this is pretty much true in every denomination of Christianity. In every de this is not a denominational issue. In every denomination of Christianity, there's a wide range of individuals in those organizations, including people with theological degrees, that see God's law in different shades, and therefore see and explain the atonement in different ways. Some that hold to the imperial law will see God as authoritarian, the source of pain, suffering, and death. God is the source of death in their model. He has to inflict it as a punishment for sin. And that's in every denomination there's people that teach that. And then there are others that, that move past that and realize that sin is a caustic agent. Sin is terminal. Sin, the wages of sin is death. Sin, when full-grown, brings forth death. And therefore, God is the source of life, and he's trying to cure the sin problem. They may explain it in different ways, but they don't see God as the one who inflicts death they see God as the one who's intervening to try and stop death. And that's true across the landscape of Christianity. It's not a denominational issue. So here's how I paraphrased Romans 4, 1 through 6 in the remedy. What about our father Abraham? What did he understand about this issue? If Abraham was somehow healed by his own efforts at keeping a set of rules or performing certain rituals, then he would have his own healing formula to promote and would not need to trust in God. <clears throat> but what does the scripture say? Abraham trusted God and his trust was recognized as righteous, as righteousness because the distrust caused through Satan's lies had been removed and through trust he was endowed with a new heart and right spirit. Now, when a person works, their wages are earned and are not a gift or an endowment. But the person who doesn't try to earn God's remedy by working for it, but instead comes to know and trust God, that person trusts person's trust is recognized as righteousness because the distrust caused by Satan's lies has been removed. And through trust, they receive from God transformation of heart and experience God's own righteous character recreated within. Do you see the difference? This is the reality. 
Christ reveals truth to destroy lies, to win us to trust. That's partaking metaphorically in the, in, the, in the symbols. The bread, the word was made flesh. We eat his flesh, drink his blood. We partake the word of truth, which destroys lies, wins to trust. We open the heart, and he pours his love into our heart. We receive a new life. The, blood, the life is in the blood, and thus we partake of the symbols of the wine, which is his life. We get a new life with a new heart and a new attitude. It's all trying to teach the same reality. The lesson points to the promised land that Abraham was promised. What was the purpose of promising Abraham the land? Was there a purpose behind it? You're going to have this land, Abraham. Is it con- was the land connected to some other promise? <laughs> and all the nations of the world should be blessed. Because you're a cool dude and you're going to make a really neat uh, sanctuary here and people are going to come from all over the world and uh, it's like a spa and get good massage and hydrotherapies. Um, is this why all the nation get, or is there, it says in the text they're going to be blessed because of what? What's going to be the blessing? Jesus. Say it, say it. Jesus coming, the seed. All the nations are blessed through Abraham because it's through his family that the seed, the promise of Genesis 3.15 is coming. And so the land was given in conjunction with the promised seed, which is the covenant of grace given in Genesis 3 to actually redeem the world and resolve the sin problem. Do you see it? Okay, so the land is given in that, that, so there's a purpose for Jesus to come. This land will be occupied by his descendants for the purpose of fulfilling the mission of the seed that will crush the serpent's head being born on earth. That was the primary purpose of the land. And so what I see, if you read in Genesis, this promise was given over and over again about the land. It was given to Abraham a couple times. It was given to uh, Isaac. It was given to Jacob. And it stated slightly different ways. And what I see happening is that this is one of those places in Scripture where you have a dual fulfillment prophecy. There are two lands being promised. And with dual fulfillment prophecies, there is a local regional application that comes first, and then there's a global application that comes second. Uh, Dual fulfillment prophecies. Uh, Joel's prophecy in Joel chapter 2 about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit prior to the second coming of Christ was also applied by Peter, quoting it exactly on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, 14. Dual fulfillment. One prophecy applied locally and regionally at the time of the gospel going forward in Acts, but it's going to have a larger application before the second coming of Christ when the Holy Spirit is poured out on all of God's people in the world. Uh, The prophecies of Isaiah and Ezekiel, where they refer to earthly kings that globalize into Lucifer, who is in rebellion against God, a global application. Uh, Jesus' prophecy about the second coming also blended with the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus' prophecy about the destruction, local regional destruction, global second coming destruction. These are dual prophecies. So the dual fulfillment prophecy about the land, they have, as I understand it, Two starting points and two ending points in these dual fulfillment prophecies. The starting point on the local, excuse me, on the global promise on the land is in Eden, Genesis 3.15. And and it's given to Abraham in two places. Uh, One 
it says that, uh, that this land would be given to you. And then later, uh, God says to Abraham, go out and look east, west, north, south. Every direction you can see, as far as you can walk, this land will be yours and your descendants forever and ever. And you will have nations, you will have children more than the sands of the seas. That's the global promise. The four points of the compass. And he, what is he actually promising? He's promising that the true heirs of Abraham will inherit the earth, not Palestine. So let's see if we can walk through this. Abraham was given a regional, local promise so that his descendants could be the avenue of the seed that was going to come to fulfill the global promise. Does that make sense to everybody? So the smaller local regional promise of Abraham's genetic descendants, they would inherit the land of Canaan in order to fulfill their mission to be the genetic family through whom Jesus would be born. And then the larger global promise given in Genesis 3.15 that is a spiritual fulfillment that the true descendants of Abraham, those who are like Abraham in faith, in character, would inherit the earth. The covenant and with the promises to Abraham focuses on two lands, One, for the purpose of Messiah coming. Two, for the righteous to inherit the whole earth. Jesus said, the meek shall inherit the land of Palestine. No. The meek shall inherit the earth. That's exactly right. And so, if we look at uh, what what the New Testament tells us about this, Paul wrote in Galatians, about who, who are the heirs to receive the promise? So you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So this promise that your descendants will be more than the sands of the sea and will inherit north, south, east, west, everywhere you go. This is the promise for all those who have faith like Abraham, who will inherit the earth. This is the bigger global promise. I'm not going to read it, but it's in the notes where Jesus in John chapter 8, 34 through 45, check the notes out, specifically tells the Jewish leadership that genetics do not determine who's an heir of Abraham and who will actually inherit the promises. What determines it, Jesus tells them, is the character that they have. And he tells these genetic descendants directly to their face that they are children of their father, the devil. They are not considered children of Abraham. You can't make it more clear than that. Yet so many Christians today still get caught up in the idea it's about genetics. It's not about genetics. It's always been about character. And so the starting point for the global promises in Eden, the starting point for the regional promise of the land is when Abraham left Ur. The ending point of the regional promise to Abraham was when Jesus said, your house is left to you desolate, and shortly thereafter the temple was destroyed. That regional promise, they fulfilled their goal. They were called to be the the family, uh, occupy the land until Messiah came physically and born amongst them. And they fulfilled that mission. They barely filled it. Ten tribes assimilated. Only two left. But but they did. They made it through. And then after that, the regional promise of the genetic family of Abraham to occupy Israel is complete. Now it is the global promise to Abraham that all those who have faith like Abraham 
will inherit the earth. The angel speaking to Mary about her son, talking about the kingdom, said the following, He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. This is the kingdom that we inherit, inheriting the earth. Now, you put this together, one more piece. It's really fascinating to see this last piece. It kind of blows your mind. It kind of ties it all together. To me, it kind of like a little bow on top of everything I just, just taught you. Um, in Hebrews chapter 11, the writer of Hebrews tells us that the faithful of God in Bible times, and he lists them by name, lists them by name. And these are the ones that are listed, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and many others, but these are these specifically listed, who lived, many of them, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, lived in the, quote, promised land, according to Scripture, quote, did not receive the things promised, unquote. They were looking, they were, quote, looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And it goes on to say, and this is again, quote, all these people did not receive the things promised. They saw them and welcomed them from a distance. They were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. All of these people didn't receive the inheritance promised, including Enoch. Enoch is listed. And the scripture said all of these people did not receive the things promised. How is that possible? Enoch's in heaven. He was translated. He didn't see death. He's been up there like, what, like, like, he's like, what, 5,837 years old or something? I mean, he's, he's got a, he's got a, he's got a recreated and heavenly perfect body. He, he is now sinless. Uh, certainly, no. Why? Because what was the thing promised? The earth made, he will inherit, the meek shall inherit the earth and until sin is eradicated and the earth is made new the promises are not fully fulfilled so enoch has not yet received the things promised the righteous will inherit the earth isn't that cool monday's lesson first paragraph points out that after abraham believed the promise from god uh, to give him a son that with uh, time abraham's faith began to fail he looked to normal human biology, human culture, and sought to implement a human-created solution based upon human understanding of things. And the suggestion of his wife, he took Hagar to be a surrogate. He came up with an alternate heir to fulfill the promise. Did it work? Did his, did his, his interventions to help God along work? Was Ishmael the, the, the child that was promised? Remember, the Bible records real historic people doing real historic stuff, but their lives serve as an object lesson. What's the object lesson here? God has a plan. Let's see this object lesson. God has a plan of salvation based upon the reality of his kingdom, which are his design laws, the real terminal condition that Adam brought upon the human species. We're dead in trespass of sin. We have a terminal death-causing problem. 
and that problem needed a remedy or a cure. God's law of love needed to be restored in humanity. This required Jesus to come as the second Adam and take the terminal condition upon himself to eradicate the death-causing principle and restore the life-causing principle into the species human in order to be our savior. So in God's plan, all who trust him open their hearts in trust and receive the Holy Spirit who takes the, the character, the desires, the motives of Christ and reproduces it in us. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. That's right. It's not ours to overcome in our own strength the temptations of fear and selfishness. We don't have to do that. We overcome through God's strength, trusting him. Christ overcame. Get your mind, he did trust his father, but there was a time he was abandoned or let go by his father, and he was doing it in his own human strength. He was not being empowered externally anymore. Get your mind around what he did for us. We could never do it. We don't have to do it. We can always face every temptation under the umbrella of trust and the presence of God in our heart. We will never be, never will I leave you nor forsake you. We won't have to face that. And we need that law written upon our heart to fix the damage. And we see the object lesson. God's plan was a miracle birth of a child coming from a dead womb. In our plan, for us, it is a miracle rebirth of those who are dead in trespass and sin, bringing us back to life. It's an object lesson. But just like Abraham doubted God's ability to bring life out of death, the dead womb, many hu- and, so, and therefore sought his own human solution through human culture, human law, human ritual, human um, you know, ingenuity, Far too many Christians have rejected God's plan for healing the heart and mind and recreating us in righteousness and substituting a human plan which is based on human law and human customs and human legal courtroom operations to pay off the legal debt and assuage and propitiate the wrath of an offended God in order to pay for our sins so we can be declared legally righteous while we remain unrighteous. We've got a better plan. It works better. As long as we do the right stuff, do the right legal behaviors, claim the right legal blood. I'm on first, God. You can't tag me out. (laughs) And that's how many find their trust. They don't trust God. They trust a payment to keep God from being able to have any legal basis to hurt them. Do you understand? That's not the same as trusting God. But God calls us back to faith or to trust, to receive the righteousness of Christ, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5.20, to become the righteousness of God. And then the lesson points out that um, God eventually speaks to Hagar, but only after she leaves Abraham's house. Then he speaks to her, not while she was still there. Object lesson. God will enlighten and convict and speak to people only as they're willing to leave behind the false human systems and works. Why? Because if we insist on our human system of doing things, that means we're rejecting the light, the truth, and what else can God do for us if we won't follow the truth and the light?
Uh, Tuesday's lesson is all about uh, the, the object lesson of circumcision. We're going to skip that because I, I wrote a blog on that. That blog will come out Thursday. If you want to see what I was going to say, just our blog this Thursday is going to be on the object lesson of circumcision. You ever wondered about that? What is that teaching? Well, that's kind of strange and bizarre. Uh, it's actually quite poignant lesson, and, uh, and the blog that posts on Thursday will be about that. Uh, Thursday's lesson is about God's uh, promise of a son. Uh, the first paragraph says, God's promise of a son to Abraham has, been, has just been reconfirmed. Yet instead of enjoying the good news, he engages God in a passionate discussion about the fate of Lot and Sodom. Abraham not only is a prophet who, uh, God, to whom God will reveal his will, but he is also a prophet who intercedes on the behalf of the wicked. Did God need that intercession? Uh, if Abraham would not would have asked for, for five instead of ten, if he'd have just asked for three, asked for one, one instead of ten, asked for a lot, one. If there's one righteous man left down there, would God have relented? In other words, did God tell Abraham this, hoping that Abraham would talk him out of it? No. So this, he interceded. Hmm. What's the purpose of this encounter? Why did God go tell Abraham? And why is it recorded in Scripture? What's his purpose? There's a purpose that's here. What? Why? Was it not to give a record so that we could understand why God did it? Why he did it? Did God know beforehand when he told Abraham how Abraham was going to respond? Yes, he foreknew it. And did he also know that after the discussion and negotiation and the talking down, down, down to 10, that uh, there still wouldn't be 10. He already knew there's not 10 there. So he already knew he's still going to destroy. Yes? It also says that Lot had sons-in-law. That didn't go. They stayed in the city. Mm -hmm. So it would be reasonable to think if you had a servant in your house and at least four children who were some of whom were married, that 10 people would be easy. Yeah, but they married outside the church. They weren't Sabbath keepers. But Abraham might not know that. He might not know the situation of his family. Yeah, I understand your point. Again, what was the purpose of the encounter? God knew. God already knew how many were there. He already knew where Abraham was going to stop. This encounter was not to actually change anything. It was to inform Abraham and all of us who are reading the account so we have an understanding of why God did it. And, and what's the context of this? God has just confirmed the covenant with Abraham that through Abraham's children who were going to occupy this land, the seed who's going to crush the serpent and save the world is coming. That's what he just did. If you look at the, con the verses right before, he goes, should I not tell Abraham about what I'm going to do? So he just gave, reconfirmed the promise, and then he tells him he's going to do this. It's in the context of... And so, thinking that through and looking at history, after Sodom, Gomorrah, and the other associated cities, because it was more than just, just something like five cities or something, were taken out. Israel, at some point later, comes and occupies this land. How many tribes made it through till Jesus? Two. 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 Two as tribes. I think there's individuals that knew their ancestry still. You read about, uh, I think, the woman who, who was the prophetess in the temple. She's from the tribe of Asher. Okay, but, but these tribes organizationally are being dispersed and lost. Ten of them, gone. Uh, Paul knew he was from the tribe of Benjamin. 
Okay, so the, they, the, the individual still had some uh, genetic uh, uh, history of knowing where they're from, but the tribes organizationally, functionally, they're gone. They've been assimilated. Only two have made it through. Without these cities, my perspective is God knew that the influence of these cities with not even ten righteous people in these cities, not even ten, that the influence would be so corrupting on the children of Israel down the road that it would not be possible for them to fulfill their mission. So he cauterized or amputated this necrotic tissue. That was also a warning to the Canaanites of what God could do for when the Israelites came back from Egypt. They had hundreds of years of warning. Yes, they did. They, had, they, they, they did. That's a, that's a different issue, though, about why, why afterwards, uh, coming back, were, were some of these wiped out. Um, but, but Sodom and Gomorrah, I think, was the purpose of keeping open avenue for Messiah. Same purpose as the flood. This was not punitive. It was therapeutic. Yet, if you read on Friday's lesson, this is out of um, a theologian's uh, uh, perspective. It says, uh, second paragraph, In an extremely revolutionary manner, the old collective thinking, which brought the guiltless member of the guilty uh, of the guilty association under punishment uh, has been transposed into something new. The presence of a remnant of righteous people could have a preserving function for the whole. For the sake of the righteous remnant, Yahweh would in his righteousness forgive the wicked city. Really? Forgive the wicked city? So, so if I'm righteous... And all these people are doing wicked, horrible, drug-dealing, child molestation, rape, murder, pillage. My righteousness will result in them being forgiven. They're all going to go to heaven. Is that how that works? For the sake of the righteous, they'll be forgiven. Does that even make sense to anybody? I'd be preserved like salt. This is what you get when you have a false law model. Put it in the, in the design law model. If there's enough righteous left in the city, he won't destroy it. It's design law. Doctor looking at a wound that's necrotic, looking at a foot that's got necrosis, gangrene on it. If there's enough viable, healthy tissue, we have hope that it may reperfuse and we can save the foot. We don't need to amputate yet. If there's not enough viable tissue that the foot can't be rehabilitated, that the righteous or the healthy tissue can't take over, then the way to preserve the whole is to amputate. And in these cities, there weren't even ten righteous people. There was no people left that could be sources of light to convert and rehabilitate the group. They only become necrotic, and now the necrosis spreads. And so God puts them to sleep. Remember, this is not punishment for sin. These people are going to be raised, and they come out of the grave with the same current of thoughts that they went in the grave. That for them, it's a blink, blink, and they open their eyes, and they continue on right where they left off. This was not about punishing sin. It was about putting them in time out, suspended animation, removing the necrosis from the equation of this land so that the fulfillment to Abraham's genetic family could be realized, Messiah could come, and the species saved. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love, for your blessings, for your watch care. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for what you've accomplished. We thank you for the revelations you've given us in Scripture. 
We ask that you will take the victories of Christ, reproduce it in us, give us hearts and minds that, that can be effective in taking this final message of mercy to the world that we can see you face to face very soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.